0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Hindu Studies podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Leah Como, who's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Sciences in Philadelphia. Um, We're talking about a really fascinating, rich read, uh, material devotion in a South Indian poetic world. Um, Hello, good morning, Leah. How are you?
1: Good morning, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, it's my pleasure. Uh, one might say it's my dharma, apparently. Um, <laughs> just prior to <laughs> us hitting record, um, you were saying something really fascinating and I thought we better get this on the air. Um, uh, what were you saying? I interrupted you actually.
1: I was, I was mentioning how, you know, I always see these calls for digital humanities and how we need to capture oral narratives and people's stories and we're always trying to do it retroactively and that this series of the new books in hindu studies is actually has it shows that raj has foresight and that he's collecting these you know he's creating a corpus or you know a digital corpus um really a library and it will become a scholarly anthology if it ah. isn't already, i mean it already is i mean we're listening to it as it is built but,
0: um, yes, but yes. that's
1: really what we're building here.
0: That's so fascinating. You know, you know, much like the the age that we're living through, the epoch, the turn of the epoch that we're living through, we're not going to begin to understand 2020 for 100 years. <laughs> we can see it. But there's so much happening uh, with all of education, with the humanities, with the world, with structures. And it's similar to this podcast. I have no idea how I got roped into this. I'm very thankful that I did agree to do this service. I think I did all three three podcasts in all of 2018 when I started. And I've probably done about, you know, close to 50 in this year alone, 2020. It's grown. And I'm really surprised. I really, really am surprised at the diversity of listeners. Because yes. generally, it's pitched towards a public audience, right? It's pitched towards people who are interested in continuing studies crowd, you know, heritage learners and the like. Um, mm. And yet our specialist colleagues listen in. And I'm thinking like, isn't this boring in them? But I I don't know. It's sort of, um, I think it's a great way to vet the book for their own research and teaching. But it, it really feels to me like it's becoming a thing. It's becoming a community. Like I'm on the other side of it. So I don't really engage people who listen to the podcast. Mm. But it feels to me like it's now a thing. You know, that makes sense. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, it's such a clean forum for hearing Um, the notes of the book right I mean it's your own it's a book review of your own book and and the format is so clean and efficient I mean why wouldn't you listen it's such a good um, yeah it's such a resource really that's fascinating And you can do it you know a lot of people have said you can do it as you're folding laundry you can do it as you're preparing for class I listen to it in between classes when I'm just pulling out readings and whatnot for my next class. So my brain, my hands are in teacher mode, but my brain is in research mode and I can do that and kind of double my workload with this podcast. So it's amazing.
0: Yeah. There are a couple of podcasts that I listen to, and obviously they're always, you know, while walking or or washing dishes or cooking or something. I never listened to this one because the perfectionist in me would not be able to sleep that night. (laughs) Because this is very, it's not like this is my full-time job. This is something I fit into a number of things where, you know, it's not like I sit there and rehearse questions all night and agonize over that. So it's very off the cuff, obviously, as anybody who listens knows. Um, your book is so interesting. I think I want to start with a question that I usually ask later, if at all. Can you tell us what your data is? What are you looking at for your book?
1: Yes. Um, The data is several things, and this is what makes the book what it is. Um, So I'm trying to introduce this concept of the sensory corpus, and that is connecting text, a single text, if there's such a thing as a single text, all the intertextual references, and then the materiality of that text, whether it be the actual palm leaf manuscript or a mountain that is described in the literature. So all of that materiality is accumulated and that's intentional and that's the model of the book is to sort of accumulate and and to sort of snowball all this information together as an intellectual exercise, not as, um, it, it gives you a framework to move anecdotal, so-called ev- anecdotal evidence from the field into an intellectual model for the study of literature. Um, so the data is ninth century Tamil devotional poetry, um, sculptures and iconography, grammatical treatises, hagiographies, temple inscriptions, modern commentary, um, temple architecture, and then contemporary observations about the life of the poetry and everything that has come out of the life of the poetry, um, all put together um, carefully and with intentional design.
0: So you are looking at, at literature, right? You're looking at a literary work with an eye to what's happening in the world beyond that work. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: I'm looking at the, the literature and the world inside, the materiality of the world inside the literature. Um, again, like as they talk about mountainscapes and rushing waterways, but then also a, um, characterizing that literature as something that generates more. So whether it be the Kovai genre and all the Kovais that come after it, or whether it be a sculptural tradition or whether it be a performative moment. So it's not just the text, but all the little ripples and butterfly effects that come out of some, when you compose poetry.
0: One of the it's it's a rich read. Uh, maybe we'll share a snippet of it. It's it's a very accessible sort of um, narrative style, really. So obviously a scholarly work, but it's a narrative style. It's a rich read. It it pulls you in, and so that the style befits the content, which is. Wanted to pull you into a world uh, to, to, to facilitate an experience. Yeah. To my mind, one of the one of the typologies that plays in my brain is something, I think originally it might be from Umberto Echo, but it was this sort of typology was put on my radar by my brilliant advisor, Beth Rowland, um, who put into my conscious mind something I'd internalized, which was what I love to do is look at the world within the text. That's what I do. That's where I thrive. That's where I love to look at the narrative and understand that world and how it's functioning. And then there's the world in front of the text, right? And then there's the world behind the text. And your your study so um, so colors or even collapses that, it's fascinating because you're looking at, you're looking at the ways in which the world behind the text and in front of the text work. Are encoded in the text the way in which the world within the text is impacting the world in front of the text and has impacted the world behind the text and it's so so interesting. So my typology doesn't doesn't work with a project like yours because it's so richly uh, interconnected. Um, tell us about this project. So so how did you go down this path? Like how did this come about?
1: Yeah, I um I did my dissertation at Penn um, at UPenn. And it was primarily a, a literary and genre study at that point. And I was guided by Justin McDaniel, Daud Ali, Stephen Hopkins, um, and Sasha Abling at Chicago, uh, got me actually initially hooked into The Turquoise Wire. Um, but then after that, I, I was thinking about, you know, what is the book going to be? And what's my contribution? And during my field work, I, I just had such strong impulses with experience and materiality. It's, I, I wanted to include that material and I, and I didn't know how to include that material into an, you know, how do you speak about sculpture in a study of literature? So I had to find, um, and I was, you know, sort of gravitating towards materiality studies and affect studies. And it was giving me, again, like scholarly language to talk about how varied the data is. And it also gives you strategies in the case of, you know, at least in my sources, we have, so, um, you know, a hagiography from the 13th century a sculpture from the 16th century a poem from the 8th century and some inscriptions from somewhere in between how do you fit those together i can't weave se- with you have centuries holes worth of holes between these data points but they're still related they're part of something and also not to say you know since the beginning of time tomels have been this way so how do you balance you know not filling in the holes acknowledging the holes but weaving it together in a way that's meaningful and also accepts different kinds of sources as authoritative and brings, you know, lowers the status of certain sources and raises the status of other sources. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I was thinking about. And I have to also acknowledge um, two other really important influences. Before coming to Penn, um, I did my master's at Duke with Leela Prasad. And before that I was at Syracuse with Anne Gold, Gail Hamner, and Tazim Kazam. And, so I'm a little bit of a religionist raised by folklorists and anthropologists. Um, and uh, so they've always encouraged me to be creative and to push boundaries and to really express, take intellectual risks. Um, and so I had that encouragement from earlier. And also uh, my father's a retired architect um, and professor of architecture. And not surprising, surprisingly, he also, um, worked in lighting and acoustics, and he's a musician so I you know I've never eaten at a restaurant and not sort of looked at the construction materials overhead and thought, you know what kind of soundproofing have they put in so when I went to visit these temples um, for the epigraphy work, I was um, you know drawn to the colors and the shapes and the sounds. Um, I usually work in the early morning, so you know if you're sensitive to these things like colors and shapes and then you know, hanging out in a temple courtyard at sunrise is a pretty gorgeous research topic, right? So, um, And that was so formative for me as I was doing the literary study, you know, this book was a chance to integrate all of those experiences and frame them in a way that might convince other people to start thinking about Hinduism and literature and um, South Asian religions in general from a material studies perspective so it's it's an invitation and sort of a you know a hey let's try you know let's try this it's an experiment
0: what do you find what do you weave in your tapestry what what is your main sort of conclusion or takeaway from the book
1: that's a great question for me the book is about religious sensations and i want to make sure that the poetry is framed as a dynamic expression of de- devotion, and I like this word. It's a the text is a cultivator of religious experience, that it's actually gen. It's generative, and and I use here though. I'm very attracted to the language of um, of affect studies, and um, Kathleen Stewart talks about worlding and scores and loops and trajectories. Um, sensory habits you know these phrases are so rich and uh, rhythms refrains intervals and duration all these things so you know i read them in affect studies and they are so Tamil poetry to me and so very much things that i see in my work so it's such a convincing match for me and so i i i like the idea of working with material and not having to bring it beginning to end very little in the world actually works that way. So the idea of intervals, things that work and then things that get cut off or just die off, just don't work out, um, that's allowed for in affect studies and actually is considered part of how things accumulate. So for me, that, that is the most, uh, sort of the richest piece of the work, um, which actually isn't mine, it comes from affect studies and then I integrate it into the data that I had but, but that's the piece that for me is, is the significant work um, of the book.
0: Tell us about this Tamil poem that you study and what you learn about it.
1: Um, about the Chiyokawaya. Um, it's fantastic. It's you know attributed to Manika Vasakar. He's one of the four main Shaiva Bhakti saints, one of the Nalvar. And it's 400 verses. Every verse has to mention Shiva in some fashion. It has to praise him. And it is also um, ahaoral poetry, so it ha- it has um, it has its roots in Sangam or you know classical Tamil love poetry. So we have the hero and the heroine. We have the Tinai landscapes, or the interior landscapes, as they've been made famous in Western um, Western Academy. Um, and, you know, interestingly, Monica Vazagar doesn't write himself into this poem all that much. Some of the other bhakti poetry, it's the poet figured as the heroine and, and she, you know, laments and seeks out her, her desired lord. This poetry is not told in that fashion. The poet is kind of outside of the romance. And so it's a it's a proper sangam romance between the hero and a heroine. And then as they interact on the landscapes and they sort of lament and they chase after each other and they hide and plot to meet each other in the dark, all these things. Shiva is there in the background or sometimes in the foreground, depending on the, on the verse. So they walk through, you know, meeting love at first sight. They plan with their friends and the confidant to meet, they eventually marry. And then at the end, the hero leaves the heroine, I think 93 times I counted (laughs) for various, um, Trists and whatnot. He goes and works for the king. He goes for an education. He goes for other women who are more attractive or enticing than his wife, and and then at the end, um, the, well, there isn't truly like an end, but um, you know, it ends with a meditation on the hero being respectable, and he has all the riches of the supernatural world. So, uh, the poet works through all these phases of Acham love poetry. But again, the um, Shiva is sort of walking in the woods with them. He's pictured in the city in 21 cities are named where he's there dancing or he's in the temple or he's in the hall at Chidambaram. And it's really just every single verse of the 400 has to weave both stories together. And then there's a third plane or landscape. This is from Norman Cutler. Um, the, The third sort of person in the room is the devotees who are not in the Akham love story and they are not gods, you know, so they're not in the same plane as Shiva and the people, the gods he interacts with, Tirumal and Brahma and these, these figures. Um, but then the devotees are there occasionally, they have melting bones. They sometimes they mess up and they don't follow Shiva, um, and so those are the three three landscapes that Monica Wasikar designs in this poetry.
0: Do you want to tell us a little bit about the structure of the book?
1: Sure. Um, the The beginning of the book sets up um, the rules and structures of Aham literature and the, the Tenai, the five landscapes, and how those different pieces work. And These become, you know, at the beginning, I have to say it starts a bit technical. I tried to make it accessible, but it is a bit technical um, because these works do have um, really long histories and very tight designs. So that's the natural part of the poetry. So I try to bring people in to some of that structure that comes with poetry, And it is also the framework that makes the Chokovir legible. You have to know something about that love poetry to know what makes Tiyokovaya special. And these become essentially the ingredients for the sense of religion that I argue is, comes out in the poetry. So once you have those inherited tropes from Akham poetry, then we go into the landscapes and I take us to the 21 cities that Monica Vesca actually names in the poetry and also include the um, Podiai, uh, sorry, Podial Malai, um, which is the, the, the mountain range in South India. And I talk about some pilgrimage maps and compare some of the poetry to his contemporaries, which would be Namalvar, Devaram, and Tiravasakam, which is attributed to Manikavaskar as well. So usually when you get a book, with Tirukovayara and oftentimes it'll also include Tiruvastakam because it's by the same poet. Um, So those pieces give you a sense of, you know, what were other people doing during that time or what kind of stuff, what was he thinking about or reading or, you know, setting other poets up to do next. So it puts it a little bit in context. And then the next chapter um, addresses the split between the hero, the heroine, the patron of the text, which is Varaguna, the Pandya king, and Shiva as heroes, there's two heroes in every Kovai, the hero of the love story and then the hero of the text. In this case, Shiva is the hero of the text. Um, so I do a little bit of cataloging of just showing, these are the characteristics that come out in these 400 verses. These are the things that the heroine does. These are the things that the hero does. These are Shiva's qualities. And just kind of show them back to back to see, you know, what does masculinity and femininity look like in this poem? And then I close with the palm horse ordeal, which is um, a, it's a, a chapter that's used in a lot of Aachen poetry. So there's lots of examples of palm horse ordeals, but in this one, the, the, a horse is made out of, you know, palmyra palms, which are sharp. And then the hero is supposed to climb up on top of it and go through the village of the heroine who he loves and sort of make public his desire for her and there's a lot of shouting and hoopla and a lot of gossip surrounding the Palm Horse ordeal. And this is an important motif because uh, as he's sort of thinking about how we're going to do this, we, we got to get the stuff, we got to build it. We're going to make a real scene. He, um, his friend tries to dissuade him from doing the Palm Horse ordeal. He's like, if you do this, Everyone's going to be really upset. It's going to bring so much shame and discomfort to the village. Let's think of some other thing to do. And one argument he makes to tell you not to do it is to say, you know, part of the Palmer's ordeal is that you paint a picture of your beloved and you hang it up, you hold it up on a canvas so everyone knows who it is that you're there to see on your ride. And he says, you can't paint her. She's so beautiful. Her voice is like a flute. Her body movements are like, a you know, Liana or Swan. Um he has a couple other, she has her her teeth are like pearls. So there's all these qualities that you can't capture in a painting or in a drawing. And so that's the great disservice. Um and so in that same verse, when he's trying to dissuade him from taking the canvas of his beloved, we also have Shiva is there, and he also can't really be captured on you know, two-dimensional art, or you know, it's very hard to capture the excellence of Shiva, the grace of Shiva in words or in text or in drawing, all these things. So you hear not just that you can't capture the heroine, but you also can't cap- capture Shiva in these, this media. So, um, so that sort of takes us, starts leading us into the final section of the book, which talks again about ornamentation as pleasure-filled, um, ornamentation as a transformative act. This is from Cynthia Packard. And I take us to um, a day of counting the undials and of finding honey at the top of a building, you know, in the roof of a temple. And then looking at a few examples from nature, Um, for example, a tree that's covered in ornaments like a woman with like beetle earrings, the honey that the lame man can't reach and he cries out for. Um, and different color combinations between red, black, and white. Um, and these are colors that are used in a lot of Tamil literature, not just to Hayar, but um, gets us into that final meditation of materiality, ornaments, nature, um, and all of this to create a landscape that's incredibly beautiful, super saturated. And then within that beautiful landscape and the emotion of the love narrative, Shiva is placed there for his own enjoyment and for his own um, glorification. And that's sort of the gift, that's the gift of the Kovai from Manikavasakar to Shiva, for Shiva to dwell in the super sensory, gorgeous, gorgeous, um, emotional and sensual landscape. And sensual, I don't mean um, erotic, right? We have a lot of eroticism in Bhakti poetry, but I wanna be a little bit careful there and to say sensual as in there's all these- Of the senses. Oh, exactly. So there's bells that tinkle. There's lightning that flashes. There's fabric that flows. Um, there's smells. There's smoke to smell. There's all kinds of sensations that are worked into this poetry.
0: This sort of uh, awareness, or or the act of being attuned to such, would you say that um, this is uh, this is particularly important for for scholars of this these sorts of texts? Or would you say it's broader, broader than that? And, and within the Hindu studies world, while studying Hindu texts in general, um, one should be attentive to aesthetic dimensions.
1: I think it's for everyone. Of course I do. I think it's for everyone, not just text studies. Um, I wanted to do it in, in the literary world because it's so rich in this particular example. But I think material studies has something to offer Hindu studies in general. And, the, and what I find compelling about it is, as I mentioned before, it, it does give legitimacy and authority to sources that may otherwise not make it into the book. Um, or that may not fit into a historical timeline or that may complicate a picture. All of these things, it actually invites those things in. And every piece of, every source does not have to be perfect or or complete a complete hole for you to present it. You're allowed to have um, data that is incomplete in affect studies. Give us, studies. An, mm, give us ahead, an example
0: please. of something that you've included that may not have otherwise been included, but for this methodology. Could you give us an example?
1: Sure. I think um, the example from the the counting floor. So I went to to check out an inscription. And when I got there, there were, you know, 25 security guards and different executive officers there because it was a day that they were counting the donations from all the containers within the, uh, within the precincts of the temple. And it was a complete surprise to me. It was not, it was a serendipitous awesome. Hey, you're doing this instead. I'll see what it is. Why not? And um so thankfully, you know, they invited me and they said, if you want to stay and watch, you can. And they emptied out all of the donation containers. And in fact, actually followed them around as they emptied them. So I never knew this because I only saw the exterior of these containers. But as they open them and unlock them, there's containers inside and they're wrapped. There's locks, padlocks that are wrapped with fabric and then sealed with wax. And then a padlock over that that's wrapped and sealed with wax, And then there's two different people from two different towns who have keys. And they have to have both keys there at that time to unlock them. I learned all of this information. And as I was thinking about ornaments and devotion and how do we give things to God, you know, to show appreciation or to ask for a blessing. This is a model that was not even on my radar. Um, and I happened to be there. And then they started, you know, dumping them out. And there was mostly money, you know, cash, just coins and paper money. But then there were um, tiny little tridents, which shouldn't have surprised me. But then there were some rings and pendants and like little pieces of jewelry mixed in. Um, and like I said, I just hadn't even considered it. I had never thought, you know, what's in those containers or how is this practice related to a large argument about ornamentation and giving, gift giving? and Uh, presentation of beautiful things and, or, you know, that whole thing, where do they come from? And, and how did someone think, you know, I could give X number of rupees or I could give this ring. How is that decision made? You know, how, how is that considered? And then the treatment of them, you know, once they come out, they were turned over and somebody was there to um, basically a jeweler was there to um, collect those items and categorize them differently and take them away. But that entire experience completely opened up what I thought about giving things to people, or or giving handmade things, giving natural objects. So how would you include that in a study of eighth-century Tamil literature? You know, I don't think it would fit in in that kind of a study. But and and also to admit, you know, that that. Scholarship comes from human beings, right? Like individual human beings and these sort of idiosyncratic paths. And you have intellectual family trees, but you also just sort of get what you get sometimes when you're doing your research. Sometimes you just can't get the outcome that you want or that you anticipated. So again, this, um, the study of, of this poetry as generative and, a, and an accumulation of knowledge and accumulation of devotion and experience and giving and proximity and materiality it's an, it allows you to draw from that and to incorporate it into your scholarship instead of trying to block it out and say, you know, that's just some strange thing that happened on that one day. But actually say, you know, some of the things that I saw that day actually influenced how I went back and finished reading verses 200 through 250. Um, I think it's a, an ethical way of reading the poetry too to sort of admit it came from me, you know, this book came from me and I'm only one person and these are my influences. Um, in the same way that we seek to understand what did Manikovassakar do with his poetry, you know, I I can kind of be more open about what I was doing when I made the book, when I made my book about it. So, you know, that's attractive to me.
0: For me, it really bespeaks the continuity between text and context. We sort of have this, this sort of not necessarily arbitrary, but ultimately artificial demarcation for the purposes of studying what we're studying and, and really a, a text that's part of a, a web of culture right it's like it's like studying a plant but first uprooting it from the soil from which it draws and, and it, there's really this this continuity between text and context and and the more we can learn the, the richer our insights into the text, the more we can learn about the culture and and, and, and arguably the more of our faculties, our human faculties we're open to. Because these were all generated by human beings <laughs> who we're, yeah. weren't bo- bots, you know, writing in a vacuum. They had feelings, they had lives, they had personalities. and so.
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, there's another thing that occurred to me. I, I don't mean to say that, you know, when I go into India, I step into ninth century Tamil court world, right? Like things have changed. <laughs> I, I want to fully acknowledge that. Um, but there are nonetheless, there are some, this is one of the reasons why I went to all 21 of this, um, towns named because some of the geography is there. I mean, some of them are, are on tops of, you know, some of the temples are on hilltops and they're very old structures. And some of them are cave mount, uh, cave temples. And, and that did give me an, you know, I'm from, uh, I'm from Massachusetts. We don't have a lot of these, um, like jaggery or, um, different kinds of flowers, plant life animal life, the sounds that animals make, you know, I don't have a lot of that soundscape before going there and experiencing it, some of that. So I, I do try to be careful not to say, you know, it's like stepping back in time when I go there. Obviously not, but nonetheless, as like you said, there, there's uh, sort of cultural refrains and, um, you know, there's climate and geography and landscape there that I think is significant to where the poetry came from and how it works now. You know, we can't go back and know exactly when it was written or who wrote it, but people today are still using it and it has impact, right? So um, I try to focus more on impact that I can see today and not try to locate or identify with specificity what the ninth century might have been. I I, I don't want to suggest time travel,
0: really. You know, the example that came to mind. Um, I me mean, when I was looking over your book, and certainly comes to mind right now as you're describing certain sounds and wildlife, um, the best example I could think of as a scholar of Sanskrit narrative is um, uh, uh, in, in the Valmiki Ramayana, in the first book, there is a vignette whereby Valmiki literally births a verse. The first verse is birth, right? He's the Adi he's the Primordial poet in in a poetic sense is certainly you know verses been extant since the Rig Veda, but you know he's the he's the first uh, author of a poetic verse because of an emotional experience that wells up in him because of this this pain or disgust or disturbance at the sight of a a, a, a slaughtered um, um, male of a pair of crouches. There's the aesthetic dimension there. But, you know, until I read Julia Leslie's masterful article, I think it's 1998, where with her knowledge of birds, she actually makes a very convincing argument that the croncha is this very specific species, the the Sarus crane. And, you know, if, if I think in my head crane or curlew, like, you know, sure, okay, so someone, you know, someone, Sling shot a sparrow out of a tree, and that's sad. But When you see and behold the majesty and the dignity and the stature of this bird, when you are, are cognizant of the ways in which they relate to each other and they, they, they pair bond, mm-hmm. when you actually behold one mourning for the loss of a mate, right. then the scene, it, it's just, we won't go back to 2,500 years ago. We don't know if there was a, an historical Valmiki or not, or that was uh, his or her name, but that knowledge of the Sara's Crane it so enriches the verse, and you so understand what Valmiki is, is going through. By you know, you, it's like the royal couple, right? It's like Rama and Sita, it's like one's wailing over the other one. And unless and until you hear the wail of the Krangshya, you don't understand why it goes, Manishada. He ma nishada, He's just he's echoing back to the Krouncha. And if you don't understand that, you're like, what is well, why on earth is this tradition celebrating this clumsy verse as this, this somehow this most important verse is very clumsy? It's not Kalidasa, like what's what's so important? He is he is basically echoing the sound of the saris And for a textual scholar, I mean, I mean, one wouldn't typically go there. One wouldn't be studying birds and sounds of birds but that's just an example that comes to mind that I think I think illumines uh the point you're making
1: yeah I think so too I mean a uh, bird falling like that is really heartbreaking <laughs> I was imagining it as you were describing it right and that that feeling is the feeling of the poetry right so we need we need to sort of slow that material reading to really appreciate the feelings and the movement of the poetry. I'm al- I also talk about um, movement a lot and sort of physically moving from place to place and the flicking of wings and the gushing of water. There's so much, um, that, and uh, sort of crashing waves. There are so many um, moments of movement in this poetry. That I think are really important. If you've ever been stuck in an undertow at the beach or ha- been knocked over by water, it's extremely abrupt and disturbing. Um, and you know, there's these massive waterfalls in Kutralam and I actually have a photo of a Kutralam waterfall in the book, and it's extremely anemic for what a waterfall can be in Kutralam I was just there at the season. I happened to take the photo at the season when um, the water was low. And so for for those who are, you know, have been there and see that picture, they're going to be thinking, you know, why did she put this picture of a little trickle? But for those who haven't ever seen the waterfalls in kutralam maybe they will get at least some sense of the water falling through this hole in the rock. It's so beautiful. But these are other, you know, and more examples. Um, and are also sort of, this is a bit of the comedy of it is that if you are in tune with the waterfalls in kutralam you will be again, like a bit disappointed in the photo I included, but there are all these sort of little moments and um, gestures toward this this information. Again, these these are data points, right? It's not just like, oh, have you been to Kuchal and the waterfalls are beautiful. This is actually information you need to really get into the poetry. Um, so, so yeah, I'm hoping others So what's the that way.
0: Yeah, so speaking of others being moved in that way, and in particular, others who are scholars of Hinduism, what is your call to them? I mean, we've touched on this, but what, what are you inviting or calling folks to do?
1: I mean, I don't, wanna, I, I don't wanna tell people who are scholars of one thing to become scholars of another thing. You know, I, I don't mean to prescribe, we ought to do this now. That, you know, that's not even reasonable. And also not everybody's inclined to focus on these topics. More, what I'd like to do is, I suppose, two things. One is that I would like to get this poetry at the table of material studies. It's, it's really an invitation to scholars of religion outside of Hinduism to see what is going on over here with us and the work that we're doing and to take start taking this into account as we develop what material religion is and how it functions. Um, and so I did want this work to be accessible to those people. For scholars of Hinduism, um, I suppose I. um it's an invitation to, to start considering this kind of material culture as useful for literary studies, but also material culture for material culture. I, um, I'm not necessarily, um, again, yeah, I'm not trying to sort of redesign what people are doing, but I think an awareness of materiality in the text is significant, you know, to how we read them. And I, and I do hope that this is gives an option for people who have incomplete data or what we might conceive of as incomplete data and start thinking about that material as complete data or you know legitimate authoritative material towards our understanding of Hinduism and religion in South Asia.
0: Fascinating. Um, is there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on?
1: I, I would just like to leave on, on this idea of Um, accumulated materiality, that it's not necessarily one point makes or breaks the story, but it's really this sort of overwhelming, snowballing, sort of tumbling effect. And experiencing the poetry, you know, starting at verse one and ending at verse 400 gives you a certain kind of reading of the text and a certain kind of result. It's very hard to write worlding or the concept of worlding as something that has like trajectories and things that work and don't and refrain and duration, these different kinds of concepts that affect time and directionality. It's very hard to write that into a text that, you know, my book is going to replicate, you know, starts on page one and ends on page whatever page. So it, it, it writing about these things is... Um, is kind of a trap because it, it forces you to replicate the thing that you're saying maybe isn't the only way to do this. Uh, and maybe, you know, this is another reason why I like the, the podcast, because this is becoming a collection of oral narratives that is not text form. There's no text to this. You haven't even transcribed these conversations, right? There's literally no text to this podcast. It's amazing. Um, what scholarship do we do that's not put into text form? So, so I, I, you know, I'm still thinking about these things. I'm still thinking about in what ways has the book not actually achieved some of the things I wanted to and in what ways is it an experiment? I hope some things catch on. I expect some people won't like some parts of it. And I'm open to that. You know, I'm curious to see what this book worlds and generates um, and I'm open to it. I don't have a clear expectation, like, what, you know, where, where it's headed or what impact it will have. Um, and it will probably surprise you 0% that my next project is on um, flowers <laughs> in Tamil religious culture. And um, so I'm having a chance to take some of these things that were so apparent and exciting to me and sort of push them to the next level um, in this next project.
0: Fantastic um great as i've said before on this podcast um good books are beginnings not endings and i say that as, as a fellow um experimenter of innovative methodologies <laughs> in studying text and so uh, you'll you'll add to and start new conversations and that's i think what a good book does um thank you for appearing on the podcast today
1: thank you so much for having me this is great Thank
0: you. Yes. So for those of you listening, well, it's great having you. Uh, We have been talking with Dr. Leah Como about a fascinating new 2020 publication as part of the Bloomsbury Studies in Material Religion called Material Devotion in a South Indian Poetic World. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the interplay between material culture and poetics.